you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. With that in mind, spoken over the room right now, we are in a stained glass season here at Kaleo, where we're going through each of the stained glass pictures represented in this room. These were installed in the 60s, so they are old, older than most of the people in this room, as I would assume most were born in the 80s and the 90s. Those who were before that, you are our elders, and we salute you, and we love you. I see you. (laughs) But being present to the fact that there have been numerous people throughout the decades that have walked into this building people from all types of economic backgrounds, of family history, people of faith and people without walking into this room, whether it's for a funeral, a wedding, or a Sunday service, whether they're part of Grace Lutheran or one of the renters throughout the years who have come through Grace Lutheran's doors to collectively worship Jesus together. Think of these people for a moment. Look around the room at the glass and allow their stories to mystically do something to your present reality at this moment. Just take a little bit of time. Stories of happiness, of joy, of sadness, of celebration, of lament, of pain and suffering, of circumstances in the family life that were unforeseen that seemed like no one would get through. Stories of salvation experiences where somebody for the very first time professed Jesus Christ as their their personal Lord and Savior. Stories of people who were hanging on by that last thread before they walked away from faith and maybe even life all together. Stories of abundance, stories of scarcity, stories of healthy relationships and marriages and tattered and damaged ones, all sitting at some point in time where you sit now. We don't take that for granted. We don't take the collective stories of humanity for granted. Now, I have a story. It's not as heavy, but I really enjoy it. It happened a few weeks ago. My sister and her two kids decided to come visit us on a whim, and it was Memorial Day weekend, and we didn't have the foresight of planning for their arrival, so we didn't get a pool pass, resort pass, like you do in Phoenix if you do not own a pool, which we do not, unfortunately. But we have friends who do, and that is great networking, and they're cool people as well in this room. So we're looking for these passes and they're sold out and they're kind of expensive. And so my wife has the bright idea, like, let's just book a room at a place. And so my sister and her are looking and they decide to book a room at the Marriott at Desert Ridge, which is like 
a pretty cool little water park area. There's a great golf course out there. I didn't get a play. I was having to be a dad and be present on the weekend, which is a good, good thing to do. And we were playing and swimming in the pool and having a good time and went to the room and realized this was a really nice room, but we hadn't planned on staying the night, which again, why weren't we thinking that? Because it was over 100 degrees and you don't make wise decisions when you live in Phoenix and it's summer. We all have grace here for our brains at this time in the fall, no, not even the fall, it's too hot then too. In the winter, maybe we'll start making good decisions, but... My wife, Ellen, and my sister, Missy, decide they're going to stay with the older kids, and I'm going to take John Allen, my son, who is actually in this room because he refuses to go to the kids' area, and we've indulged him to let him listen to the sermon because he understands it because he's well above his years because my son's a prodigy like all of our kids. Well, I'm going to take him back, and Ellen has to run home like 30 minutes to go get her stuff to get ready for bedtime, which for me, I, I just could use my finger as a toothbrush and then wake up and be good. She has a process. I don't know exactly what she's doing, but she looks good and I'm proud of her for doing the work in the mirror before bed. Contacts, face stuff, all the things. So she goes back and does that and I'm hanging with the kids while my sister's getting ready in the bathroom for dinner. We're gonna stay in. We're not gonna drive anywhere. We're gonna stay there and eat and then I'm gonna leave and go home. So we're sitting there as a me and the six-year-olds and the five-year-old and the two-year-old and we're watching Breaking Bad in the hotel room. I'm, I'm joking. We were watching PJ Masks. That would be, you, you could judge me. You could judge me for that. But we're watching PJ Masks and I'm dozing off, take a little nap and then get up, Ellen says she's close to the hotel and we decide to go get a table. So my sister and I are walking and the kids are screaming and it's loud and why do kids scream so much? But they do and they're screaming down the hall, they're excited, they're at a hotel, they're at a new place. And we get to the elevator, we push the button, and my sister and I are having a conversation, and we're vibing on this conversation. I don't actually remember exactly what it was, but we're talking, and the door opens, and we get off the elevator, and the kids start like little ducklings, like bolting off of this thing. And the next thing I realize is I look back at my two-year-old son is making his childlike pace towards the elevator. And I start to go do it, but the door is shutting. And I don't get my hand in there in time, and the door shuts. Two years old, by himself, nobody else on the elevator. I push the button, because normally, like a normal functioning place with the elevator, it should open immediately, but not this place. I push the button, and another elevator opens, and my son is gone in the wind. So... I panicked a little bit. I got on that other elevator. I don't know why I went to floor three, like he knew where our room was. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to wait at this checkpoint and he's going to get me. I go to three, I get off. There's a guy, like a teenage kid at the thing. And he says, hey, did you lose a kid? I said, yes, I lost a kid. And he says, okay, my mom has him. Well, who's your mom? And why does she have my son just stay on the elevator, but he's not there. And so I go back down to the front. The kid gets on the phone with his mom and the mom says, he's with his mother. I think his mother is not here. Who has taken my son? And I look up in the balcony, like it's like this little lobby area. And I look up and my wife, who is actually his mom, is holding John Allen. 
And like, what are the chances that like my one mishaps ever in my life as a father, my wife was right there to catch it, right? So she, come, she comes back down and I just like, I knew that when that happened, like all the feelings were happening. And as a communicator, as a preacher, I started immediately writing it down thinking, how am I gonna make this story work in a sermon? And here we are. So I, I think there's probably many ways that we could go with this story. I think we could do a rendition of the prodigal son, which is one of the parables. And sometimes if you will, your separation from the father has nothing to do with your greed and your entitlement and your decisions that you make. Sometimes the elevator doors just shut. Oh, that'll preach, right? I should do that one actually. That's gonna happen. Pretend you haven't heard it if you come back. But that is not the direction we are going today. Instead, I, I wanna focus on the point that as soon as this happened, I started deliberately and intentionally and creatively thinking, what is the meaning behind this? I remember telling Chris this story and thinking, I don't know what the meaning is. And he said, I don't either, but I like it. It's good. It'll come up at some point. And I started thinking of all the things I can make this mean and all the ways that this will preach. And then I had another epiphany as I was preparing for this particular Sunday evening. We, as human beings, are obsessed with finding meaning, right? Those who have given up on meaning are those who are very few who have given up on life itself. We are meaning, creating, generating machines. And the vessel that carries with it this ever-elusive thing called meaning is Story, story, let me tell you a story. We perk up and we listen. Daniel Taylor says, story is the vessel that carries meaning. Meaning inhabits the story the way that morning mist envelops the pine forest. Everywhere present, but nowhere tangible. Detach meaning from story and both die. So it is with our lives. Nothing makes us want to live more than the feeling that we have something important to do. Nothing makes life seem as worthless as feeling that we do not. Seeing our lives as a story, interacting with other stories, gives us the sense that we are being part of a sequence of meaningful events that lead to significant conclusions. In short, one criteria for meaning is that we find plot in our lives. What is the church other than a collective group of people present with diverse stories? Interacting with one another, allowing stories to be shared between the two. We're obsessed with meaning, and story is the thing that we consume. Just to give you a few tangible stats about our consumption of stories, Netflix has currently over 200 million monthly subscribers. That's $25 billion of revenue a year and it's growing because Netflix is making moves and they got us. On Netflix, that platform, The Office, was watched for 
52 billion minutes in 2018. Those 52 billion minutes of the office are the equivalent of 99,103 years. The office story, right? Over a billion dollars in revenue is audible, which you can listen to the book. It does count as reading it. If you're an audible learner, you can read a book by listening. How many of you have an Audible account? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't know why I did that, but yeah. <laughs> I have one. Over 700 million units of books are sold every year in the United States alone. We're readers, we're watchers. But more than that, we're tellers of stories. The restaurant and bar industry alone had approximately $20 billion in revenue at 62,000 locations in this country alone. Coffee shop industry reached 47 billion in, U in the US in 2019. We go to these places, to the bar, to the pub, to the restaurant, to the coffee shop, and we sit down, and what do we do when we're with somebody? We interact and tell stories. Did you hear about, what's his name? Did you hear what he did? Did you see what she was wearing? I don't know why we're doing that. Stop saying that. Did you know that my boss did this just the other day and asked me to work on Saturday? This crazy story happened to me and my family the other day. We were at a hotel, and as we were on the elevator, I lost my son for about three minutes. We're wondering who's cheating who. Who's being true and who don't really care anymore? That plays a lot better in Texas as it's the Alan Jackson lyric. That's a country singer, just so y'all know. But it's so true. We are consumers of story. And the ideology of story goes all the way back prehistoric to when it's just a few people in a tribe sitting around a campfire. What are you doing? You're audibly listening to the stories of your people, which is the origin story of our linguistics itself. Our languages that we speak are, the or are originated out of storytelling. Then it moved on to paintings in the cave and then writing on clay and tablets and then writing on papyrus and then writing on paper and then the printing press is invented and then something called the internet. There's a few other stages that go in between those two, but what's happened is all of the communication in this world is a vessel of this one thing, story, story. And we listen, and we desperately seek its meaning. Its meaning. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychologist, and he was uh, practicing his psychology in the 30s in Austria, and then something called World War II happened, and he was Jewish, and he went to four different concentration camps. And his method of psychology revolved around the simple notion that man's core purpose is to live for meaning. 
And when he was in the concentration camps, he decided to conduct an in-person, as he was a prisoner, opportunity to evaluate and research the people in those camps to see who survived, who nobody thrived, but who did better than others and how they went about doing that. And his thing was, as long as a person has meaning in their life, they are able to endure much harder things. Now, none of us have been in a concentration camp, and I don't think we've starved or been starving, but that is a very exaggerated version of his psychology where he looks towards the inner man to see what makes us work. And when we have meaning in our lives, we are able to endure, we're able to keep going, we're able to see that light, we're able to get out of bed, we're able to have the hard conversation, we're able to see the other person and, and engage in that person's life in a meaningful way because we have stories saturated with meaning. Now, one thing we do know as we've come out of a difficult season as a church, as a city, as a state, as a country, as a world, coming out of a global pandemic and the injustices and inequalities that have come to light in a way that hasn't in, in decades, we see that there is brokenness and depravity and things playing this world that are so upsetting to where we cause ourselves to ask, what is the meaning? of all of this. In our own lives, we've had times and seasons where we've gone through the dark cloud of depression that follows us and doesn't leave us alone. We've had the chest tightening anxiety that comes upon us when we go into the social setting that makes us ask the question, why do I feel this way? We've been heartbroken, we've been hurt, we've been sick. We've asked ourselves the question, why? So many times in our lives, it's part of being human. And something becomes clear in our human stories as the plot unfolds, and our human stories are full of suffering, of pain, of brokenness. The human story ultimately, from its roots, is that of brokenness. Thank you for coming to Cleo. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs> Take that as you go. But allow that to sit with you just for a moment. I know it's not fun to look at your brokenness and to confront it even. We run from pain. But the pain is real. And we must not take it for granted because the plot is unfolding. The plot is unfolding. Now we look at this window, wherever you are in this room, look at this window. And let's allow this window to tell us a different story. All of the parables represented on this window from the Good Samaritan to the prodigal son to the sower in the field, the soil, the goats and sheep, the mustard seed, the ten virgins, 
All of these are stories that Jesus himself told the crowd in order to articulate a different story. Jesus. Remember, we, we like Jesus here at Kaleo. We talk about Jesus at Kaleo. We look to what Jesus did and Jesus told stories. But beyond the recorded stories, we see Jesus eating and drinking with people in the city and in the towns and in the area time and time again. What was Jesus doing there? Was he just listening? No. He was interacting with people, people he wasn't supposed to be interacting with, and he was exchanging stories. Maybe about his upbringing in Nazareth, maybe about what so-and-so was doing or where they're from or where they are now. Maybe they were joke stories, satire. Maybe it was irony. Maybe it was analogy. And what we do know is that it was parable. Jesus came to this world as the plot unfolded in the divine narrative to tell us that there is a different story. There's a different story to our human broken one. In fact, it is so altering, so refreshing, so redeeming that when your broken story collides with the divine narrative, God's story, something happens to your very own story. And that is called the good news of the gospel. There is a salvation moment when the story of God collides with the story of man. And the entire scriptures, which tell us what God is like, unfolds this story. And we see beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us. God chooses us. God pursues us. Ultimately, God joins us in the flesh, and then God promises to never leave us. That is the story that he continually, time and time and time again, told while he was with us and continues to move through the spirit of God that is present among us that says there is a better story. There's a better story than our broken ones. There's a better story at hand in this divine narrative, and God wants us to join it. Aristotle long ago announced that stories have a beginning, middle, and end. Many spend far too much time in the long middle of their lives thinking about what happened before and what will come after, don't we? I mean, some of you have probably checked out right now and you're thinking about something that happened in high school, maybe. I don't know. Or what will be, what will unfold? When this happens, I will this. And in our stories, whether we've collided with the divine story or not, there's this thing called middle as the climax and the plot twists and thickens and gets real good for us to pay attention to. And we find ourselves missing out on the middleness of our own stories as we are looking at what happened and what will happen. We're missing what is currently happening now. What happens in a story is there are tangible events and actions that give the content of that story. Those are real things. Those are things that you can look back at and you can grab a hold of that have implications in the present and in the future, those tangible events that happen. And what happens is there are things that we've done in our lives that are actually frustrating, things that cause us guilt, things that cause us shame. And while those things actually did happen, they're seen, they're real, they affected other people and they affected yourself, something else can change. And as Viktor Frankl in his whole psychotherapy model observes, we can't change the fact that suffering exists. 
But to the sufferer, we can change the perspective. Perspective, the way in which we view the story, doesn't have to be what others tell you it is. Doesn't have to be the lie from the enemy that tells you what you are because of your story. Instead, there's this divine story with a new lens that we can see differently in all that we are. Our stories begin to join God's story in this harmonious dance where perfection's never the point. Who likes a perfect story where it's just all good the whole time? No, we need problem. We need conflict. We need tension. We need climax. We need breakthrough. We need triumph. And here we are in the middles of this divine story, each of us being characters that play our part, interacting with the stories around us. And God is saying, there's a whole new perspective. And all you have to do is join me in this harmonious dance. The band's going to come up and play as we wrap up our time. One thing that was hard for me in preparing this week was, one, I mean, I was in Venice, and it was hard to get to a computer and want to write stuff down when I could sit on a beach with my family in 72-degree weather. But that wasn't the hard part. That was actually a lot of fun. The hard part was I, I like to have a scripture, a very particular scripture. And as a church, we partake in the lectionary where each Sunday there's the verses, there's four different verses, and you can pick one or use all of them in your homily, which is the sermon. And then you can take it down, you can dissect it, you can parse it out, you can read numerous commentary on it, and you can have this very tangible scripture to preach from. And that's a beautiful way of preaching. I love that way of preaching. But I, I think of that window and I think of Jesus and Jesus knew scripture. Scripture overflew from Jesus. Jesus was a part of the divine narrative in a way that he was intimately knowledgeable of the Hebrew text. But Jesus constantly to the crowds when he was teaching, he wouldn't necessarily, although he did at points, pull out Isaiah and say, the kingdom of God is like this and, and, and say it verbatim. But instead Jesus would say things like there's this man who was beaten on the road and left for dead. And multiple people of importance, Jewish people, same as the man beaten on the road, walked by and they didn't give him the time of day because they had big important things to do. So they walked past him, didn't even really look at him, didn't want to make eye contact with him by any means. But there was this other man, a Samaritan, a hated foe of the Jewish people who looked at this man and saw him. This man half awake, locked eyes with him, thinking maybe this will be my hope because it is too much at this point. The Samaritan picks him up and he takes him to an inn. He takes care of him, he pays for him, he gives him his time, he deviates from his path and he walks to the side of the road, the margin, and he picks up this man and he takes care of him. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And so who is Jesus in this story? A lot of us would say the Good Samaritan, right? No, 
Jesus was bleeding on the road, beaten. And although he told the stories of what the God, what God was like and what the kingdom of heaven was like, it conflicted with the story that was prevalent at the time and ultimately was killed for it. Because God's story and the stories of the world don't mesh very well. They're both ones of power, but one is much different, a much more Fred Rogers type of power that Chris was talking about earlier. But that story that Jesus was telling and the stories he continued to tell offered in this mysterious perspective and this glimpse at this plot that is still unfolding that causes us to pay attention, although we do not fully understand. Why? Because we are in the middle still of this unfolding story and we have a part to play. Now, I would love to go ahead and give you the cliff notes and say, this is what this sermon is about, but I think that would do a, a disservice to the whole notion of story as inductive hearers here in the pews right now, listening, letting it wash over you, finding the meaning as the spirit of God moves in your own lives. I pray that there's something that grabs a hold of you as you evaluate your story and the stories represented on the window and the story of God and his radical pursuit through his son, Jesus, leaving us the Holy Spirit to guide us. I hope that that permeates and ferments inside your souls as you leave this room. But before we go and sing another song and then have our benediction, I'd like to tell you the same story as earlier, but with a different perspective. The little boy swam all day and had a great time. He goes and he gets to watch his shows, which he is addicted to and a tyrant about. And he's having a great time. The door opens and now things are changing. New place, don't know exactly what I heard eat. And the kid runs out, follows the older kids, doesn't know where he's going, but just trust that they know, which they actually didn't know where they were going until corrected to go the right way. And he makes his slow two-year-old pace towards the elevator. He wants to push the button, but he's two, so he is beaten to it by the six-year-old, and he throws a little bit of a fit. The doors open, and he goes into this mysterious box that changes scenery, and he walks in with his trusted aunt and dad and sisters and cousins. It's a quick trip, only three floors. The doors open, and his family departs. Now, because he follows, that's what he does, he starts following them only to see a panicked look on his dad's face as he runs to stop the elevator and the door shut on him. And he is utterly, for one of the first times in his life, I don't know if I've left him before, he's alone and abandoned on this magical box. The doors open and he sees this woman that he has no idea who it is, which he's already shy about people because he's only two and he was born when a global pandemic happened. So he's not very socialized, hence the reason he doesn't go to the nursery downstairs. But the doors open, he sees the stranger and the stranger picks him up. And he's thinking, what is going on? Where is my dad? I want my dad. 
She takes him to the lobby and then he sees it. He sees the face of his mom walking through the doors just at that time. And she scoops him into her arms and she walks to the edge of the balcony and his family hadn't abandoned him. They were there the whole time. In fact, his dad was pursuing him to the very best of his own limited human ability. And then he got taken to the table and he got chicken nuggets and he dipped it in ranch and he had an incredible night. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is that story. Your story, his story, and her story. The plots of our lives, however broken, are not the final ending, for there's a better story. As we might be wandering from floor to floor, we have a God that is pursuing us. And if we just stop for a moment and allow that divine narrative to move in us and in our lives, things will change. Jesus, we're here with everything that we are, God, with our pasts and our presents. God, it's our prayer in this moment. I want to pray over the room that we give our futures to this better story. God, we feel restriction and resistance we give to your heavenly mobility as you do move and intercede as a personal God involved in every little plot twist of our lives. God, we open up our stories. We let go of the tight grip of our narratives and we surrender them to you in this moment. Whether it's for the first time or the 20th time or the thousandth time, God, allow us to partake in this divine narrative in a meaningful way, God. And not take lightly that you want us to share who we are with other people so that more people can know what the kingdom of God is like. Pray this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh,
tellers and we are story hearers. There is a good story and it's one that is asking you to come home to this place that is not of this world. No development in your plot is too insignificant for this story to interact with. In fact, it goes through extraordinary lengths to be a part of it. So be faithful with your story, whatever it may be. Own your story. Get rid of the shame about your story. Be open-minded to listening to different stories that challenge your stories. But ultimately, know that there is a story that is continuing to unfold like a river flows. And it's the story of God in his pursuit of humanity. And you are part of that story. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.